Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. In this episode, I respond to call-ins from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Daniel from the Bandits Keep Podcast, and Merc the Meek from the Merc the Meek Podcast. Then we have another reading from Muster, advice for playing D&D in the wargaming way. And then we have more Tales of the Dragon Slayers solo campaign. In that, in the Tales of the Dragon Slayers part of the podcast, you're also going to hear from Jason and Daniel because they had call-ins related to what happened to Prior the Paladin in the previous episode. So I hope you'll stay tuned for all that. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Hey, Jason here. Enjoyed your latest episode. Actually, I've stopped it at the moment at the end of Muster. I haven't listened to your party yet, your solo play. But I just want to mention, you know, I've kind of been diving into the idea, or at least listening to podcasts, talking about the idea of the classic adventurer game, and then some foreign, some German podcasts talking about those kinds of ideas, interviews like Gaberluck, some other things. And Anyway, the, there are a lot of ideas that are similar in there with the where instead of worrying so much about the characters and worrying so much about the personalities of the characters, it's more about playing the game and using the, I, I don't know, it's almost more taking it back to the idea of player skill and the idea of almost skirmish war game, or I don't want to say war game because that simplifies it too much, but where it's more important about the player's goals than the character's goals, and the you, you know, you're not worried about things like, oh, well, would the character really know that, you know, they could get paralyzed if they touch that, things like that, you know. It's not trying to delve deeply into that kind of thing as much as it is it's like the metagame discussion we had. The you, you know, and here it's more the idea of player skill engaging with the rules of the game and knowing the rules of the game, being smart about that, as opposed to player skill, you know, acting stupid if the character's stupid kind of thing, right? Um, and, and I'm simplifying that. And I, I don't think that's the only way I'd want to play a role-playing game, but it's interesting and it's something I kind of like to try because it's almost like a amped up board game, right? Or an amped up skirmish game. It, and that kind of interests me. But as far as PvP goes, yeah, I the times I've introduced PvP, usually it's in westerns. Um, and it's either gone okay or it's kind of gone bad. I know maybe we didn't explicitly make it clear it was a PvP game before the session. I had four players and three of them picked up on it right away and one didn't. And there was a little bit of heartburn over that. So you, you got to make it clear to everybody that, hey, everybody's on their own. You know, every every person for themselves. But I think PvP can be done without breaking friendships. But, but I think everybody needs to realize it's a PvP game, if that's the case. So thank you for all that you do. I really appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Jason. You touched on a couple really, I think, good things there. Uh, Talking about the P- 
PvP part first. I think PvP it it's one of those things where everybody has to be on board. It can't be where you have people who are lukewarm or say, "Yeah, well, that's okay," because it's it's PvP or it's not. It's there's not really a lot of I think gray area in there for people who maybe don't want PvP but just they want to play and and this group is their group that they play with or their group of friends or what have you and so they go along with it and I think that's where you get the heartburn is where maybe people get into it they don't really understand what they're getting into even if they're told front you know it's a there's PvP or everybody's on their own or something you you think of the classic board game diplomacy and the 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 legends of how friendship long term friendships have ended over games of diplomacy because backstabbing is such an inherent part of the game and so if you're playing the game and you're playing it to win you're going to backstab people you're going to make deals and then you're going to go back on those deals and you're going to backstab and I think people get into that game not understanding what that means sometimes even if they think they do and that's really the biggest thing I mean the matching of expectations to experience, and if those things don't ma- mesh, then that's how you get broken friendships, and that's how you get gaming groups that break up, and that's how you get, you know, all the negative things that you hear sometimes about gaming in general or role playing in general, come from that that mismatch expectations, and PvP I think is one of those things that almost ha- it has to be on or off. Uh, you know, going back to the concept that in the in the in the book Muster, if you go in the concept that the campaign is the you know the root kernel of what RPG play is is the campaign, and then everything else rule sets and and the, you know the what genre it's in and all that it all flows from what the campaign is what you're what you're looking for. So if your experience is going to include PvP. It's probably not something you can change unless you, you know, restart with a new campaign. So, you know, once you have PvP, you have PvP. And if it turns out everybody's not okay with it, you may just have to start over. And the other thing you talked about, and and I think this relates to it is, and it obviously does because it, you flowed pretty well from one to the other, is the, the fantasy adventure game, uh, you know, the fantasy tactical game, the fantasy uh, war game aspect of it, where you're playing it, you're playing it as, you're not playing your character as inhabiting the character, you're playing it as, you know, the puppet, the piece on the board that you're moving around and you're utilizing all of the abilities of that piece as well as your own. And that can be, a, a different kind of experience if you're used to playing as the character in the character if you're looking for immersion in a world or in a character you know it's a different experience it's you're aware you're playing a game and you are playing the game and that's really what you're doing to succeed in that game uh, whether it's succeed as an individual if it's something involving the pvp play that we talked about or if it's you know, success of the group, or if it's reaching a certain goal, success reaching a certain goal, whether it's a personal goal or a group goal or both. But yeah, it's it's another interesting style of play 
that you know branches off from the original war game concepts that became RPGs. The different, I mean, it goes well with the 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 idea of the Bronstein, where everybody's playing a role and use, utilizing the rules to to utilize their resources to to win the scenario or win or have a positive impact on the scenario, whether it's as a group or as an individual. So that's a, that's a lot to think about. And, uh, I, you talked about it well, and thank you for calling. Hey, Pink Phantom, Daniel from, I almost read from Evil Jeff, not from Evil Jeff, calling it about the call from Evil Jeff. You know, your conversation was really interesting and I can see both sides, right? If you, if you've got some change in your pocket, Right, that probably shouldn't be contact poisoned because <laughs> you're going to spend that locked away in a vault. Maybe, right? Maybe, as you say, maybe it's not quite uh, any more adversarial than a stone dropping from the ceiling, crushing everybody. Right? Certainly easier to get the treasure out after the tre- after the trap goes off. But it made me think of a couple of scenarios. Right? One could be that the players find rumors of a tomb filled with treasure. But it's cursed because everyone who tries to take treasure from the tomb dies, right? And that's the mystery. It's contact poison. And the other situation could be like a crazed king that is a hoarder, right? Never spends any of the money. He's collecting, collecting, collecting because he's the king. And he's got these giant treasure vaults filled. And they might poison it because they're effectively insane, right? So that could be really fun. Like like they're mad with the greed uh, for the coin. So that could be another kind of fun twist, right? Where... You know, again, the, the, the Thieves Guild needs a master thief to steal some of this treasure because everyone who's ever tried dies. Can you do it to become, you know, part of the guild or, or the, the head of the guild or something like that? It could be really fun. So I think using it as unrealistic, maybe, as it might be in, in a game where there's dragons, <laughs> you know, I think it, it could be a cool thing. Now, personally, I would not throw, like, as I listened to Evil Jeff reading through the book he read through and... The way that they talked about having to go through treasure, that would be, yeah, that that would be overkill. If you have to assume that every bit of treasure is somehow got contact poison on it and you've got to, like, burn it all and never touch anything, that creates a very, I don't know, to me, it would not be a very fun way to play. I think once in a while with some kind of sign, you know, uh, telegraphing it like any other trap, I think it could be kind of fun. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, to the point of contact poison i'm not against you know i don't think it makes no sense but i think having it be so prevalent that the players have come up with you know a a standard way they treat all treasure in order to to deal with contact poison that would be that that means you're you're using it overkill and that might be as evil jeff said the adversarial dming but really if you've got an adversarial dm it it wouldn't matter if you came up if you went to all the links they talked about turning it out turning a chest over from a distance taking the treasure you know breaking out the bottom so that the treasure you don't have to go through the traps because they're on the lid and burning the treasure to burn off the contact poison because an adversarial dm could easily say oh it's not contact poison it's an alchemical mix that when subjected to fire turns the gold into lead or it takes or it's explosive so even if you're standing at a distance or outside the room or outside away from it to avoid 
there being any kind of fumes, the explosion is going to do damage or things like that. So if if you've gotten to that point in the campaign, I don't know what to say to you other than unless you really enjoy it, the the you know, mind versus mind, players versus DM of trying one trying to outwit the other, uh, it might be time to walk away from that group. <laughs> but then again, that could make for an interesting, you know, game unto itself. Maybe not part as part of a role playing game, but uh here's a game where you know, stealing the treasure is not the hard part. You start off having stolen the treasure and now you have to, you know, harvest it from its containers or or maybe stealing it or maybe build that into stealing it. It's, you know, a a dungeon full of traps and and tricks and monsters and you're navigating it more as a board game than, than a role playing game really. And so you're having to adapt different types of different types of to to different types of situations you're trying to have to adopt different ways of doing things it might be a case of you have to do research to find what you need to know to safely navigate certain dangers or you know this this person this person uses contact poison this person uses you know puts disease clothing in with it so you'll catch some kind of disease that sort of thing but yeah it that book was was wild and to your point of you know things like a mad king i was thinking about the joker from batman you know the clown prince of prime this kind of chaotic genius mastermind i i think he would be exactly the type of person to use contact poison i mean you know he has the joker venom that he uses to to kill people, you know, make sure they die with a smile on their face. And I don't think he would think twice about utilizing something to protect something that he values that would kill a henchman that he told to fetch it for him. You know, it wouldn't be a case of, oh, I forgot that was on there. It was just, ah, well, you know what? I'll get another henchman, whatever. And the ones that stick around longer, the ones that become, you know, the the first rank henchmen, the bodyguards, things like that would be you know, they would have seen it happens and they would just know to take precautions. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's some scenarios that could, it could be real interesting and it could be a situation of maybe something of value. That's not just monetary treasure, but something of, uh, of some kind of significance to a person or a group, whether it's a, a cultural group or in the case of D and D, you know, a, race of demi-humans or something and so they they use a poison that affects not maybe not their race but other races so that their significant uh intellectual or cultural or magical artifacts are protected that extra barrier to, to harm from harm as well as the barriers they put around it to keep people from getting to it even if they get it it's not of much use to them uh something like you know there could be something like you talk about legends of treasure and people die trying to get the treasure it could be what if it's uh you know some kind of a macguffin some kind of a statue maybe that's a porous stone so the over years they've they've coated it with this poison to keep people from taking it and it's soaked in so even though somebody steals it and they die from it and somebody else says oh it's because you can see this sheen of poison and so they clean it off but 
it's you know in the stone and it eventually leaches back out so people continue to die from it even though they take precautions and they've cleaned it and they've analyzed it and everything but yeah there's there's all kinds of scenarios where i think it could work it's again one of those things you don't want to overuse and i think in most campaigns there would have to be a reason for it not just because it's there or in the case of what I've been doing with my solo play, because it came up on the tables, which is what's been happening. <laughs> so thank you for that call. Uh, always interesting to hearing from you. Always interesting. I think it's an interesting subject. Uh, uh, I thank evil Jeff for his call, but I'll thank him again because it's a call that has stimulated some discussion. So that's always good to have in a podcast. Thank you. Hello, Pink Phantom. This is Mark the Meek. I've uh, been enjoying your lively uh, discussions about uh, contact poison. And I think I agree with both you and Evil Jeff. That yes, it is uh, adversarial DM tactics, but no more than any other kind of thing that a DM might do to uh, induce save or die in their players. Totally agree. It's, yeah, it's no worse, but it, it certainly isn't any better. So, um, I guess the way I think of it is as the DM, which I know you're doing solo play, so it's not as important, but as a DM, what, how do I want the players to be playing for my fun as well as their own fun? Do I want them to be going, uh, 10 feet by 10 feet? tapping the floor, tapping the ceiling. Every time they get new treasure, assume it's poisoned. Um, All of that just seems way too tedious. Um, You know, and do they have to decide, are we going to check every single piece of floor or risk wandering encounters? I don't like combat that much in RPGs. So, yeah, I mentioned before on Monsters and Musings podcast, I I like tactical combat style games like Gloomhaven. But when it comes to RPGs, because everything is so open-ended and you can do anything you would like, exploration, etc., I tend to find the combat in D&D more tedious, especially considering all the other fun stuff you could do. So if, um, if the players have to check or weigh their, their, um, their options between being extremely careful and then slow down and risk wandering monsters, uh, that's just very tedious to me uh, and would be tedious to me as a DM. So I, I prefer the exploration, discovering new things, interacting with uh, puzzles and interacting with um, the, the cultures that have been created in the history and uh, interesting characters and stuff like that. So what, what am I emphasizing or what, what kind of play style am I reinforcing with contact poison or, you know, save or die um, other, you know, poison things or just dropping my players into a pit. Thank you, Merck. I think traps overall and 
how included they are and how many there are are a sort of a bone of contention among folks. I know, uh, I believe Rob down down in the Heat podcast, he's not a big fan of traps for the same reasons that you cited that they make the the party slow down play and it takes more time, at least in the game world. I mean, if you establish procedures, you could probably just say, here's how we're actively ex- exploring the dungeon here. And certainly it takes down from from the some of the exploration and everything. I think that in terms of random encounters, it really depends. Well, number one on the system, if it's a system that's not as involved as, say, the more modern editions of D&D, then combat doesn't have to take that long. And also, I think that we do tend to view random encounters as combat. I think some of that may even come from the uh, video game world, the JRPGs, where if you have some of the older style ones are notorious for always having, you know, random encounters, but it's really just random combats. But I think one thing that can happen is with random encounters, it is, is it can introduce elements that aren't combats and, you know, it can be more discussion, negotiation, uh, meeting new groups that live within a dungeon or wilderness area or a region. And that in turn can lead to exploration. It can lead to uh, development of the world and maybe even, you know, allies and resources for the party to depend upon. So I don't think random encounters necessarily have to mean just, well, we're slogging through another combat. It can be more than that. It can be uh, role play opportunities. It can be opportunities to open up new uh, goals, new quests for the party to, to have and uh, potential for new friends or new enemies longer term, maybe not even a, a uh, immediate combat, but just, you know, stay out of our territory kind of thing. But I do see your points. Uh, it is something that I think just with, you know, bog standard play, it's just, you know, you're going to pop up with some, some giant rats, or you're going to pop up with some orcs that attack you immediately or something like that. That could certainly drag out play if you're looking for more that that exploration vibe or there's a, there's a goal you're moving towards, something you're trying to achieve, and this is just some random thing that drains resources. And that's, that's mainly more of an old-school style of play thing where it's about measuring your resources, including time, including hit points, uh, you know, how deeply do you delve before you retreat and regroup and come back again? So it's 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 going to be a matter of taste. It's going to be a matter of system. And it's going to be the matter of way things play out. And then, of course, with uh, something like Contact Poison, you're adding on top of all of that the the save or die thing if, if it's in an old school style game, which is also something that can bring an abrupt change or an abrupt end to a, to a delve or setting or, or even an entire party, depending on how things go. But, uh, yeah, I see your points exactly. And, uh, thank you for calling in. Continuing my page through read through of muster, a primer for war advice for playing D and D in the wargaming way, which I started as part initially started as part of Octo SR. Uh, the next chapter is titled campaign setup. 
And for those of you who have the book and have been following along, it starts on page 123. I encourage practitioners to treat the campaign as the basic unit of game development for D&D. The commercial history of the game has distorted this reality, encouraging us to think in terms of which game brand it is you're working with. We are playing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons should be a trivial gesture towards the kind of rules tech you use, not the foundation of the practice. The true foundation is that we're playing D&D, a war game concerned with adventurous small unit commando fantasy warfare stuff and other adventure fiction matters from pirates to spaceships. The game has certain fundamental technical conceits ranging from a combined referee GM to party-based play of the use of hit points. But that's all it is. Elevating the petty technicalities of addition over this foundation is missing the forest for the trees. And what may be worse, caring so very much about the game text blinds you to the house you should be building your own campaign. For gamers used to thinking in RPG culture ways, I would encourage you to think of your own campaigns as the game. Specifically, your campaign is the platform onto which matters like the game setting and the game rules hang on to. You don't first choose to play AD&D, then choose to play Forgotten Realms, and then start a campaign. It's actually the other way around. You first decide to start a D&D campaign titillated by various creative ideas, and you prepare to fulfill those ideas by pulling together rules, setting lore, players, and other things. Give the campaign a name. I found this helps in treating it as the creative project it is. But perhaps that comes after being at it for a while. Belay that. Don't name your first campaign the moment you begin. See if it lights a blaze first, then name it for the most memorable thing from the early sessions. Or set it aside and start again. Not every practice work deserves a name. The important part is understanding your relationship to the game as that of as an artisan or explorer working alongside the rest of us. Not according to a set game text that determines what tribe you belong to, but by a shared ethos that determines what you work towards. With that part clear, I'll share some basic ideas about how to kick a campaign into action. Just some practical suggestions. Don't be afraid to set up a basic campaign. That's the next section. i found that the forward leaning is real with exciting new referees, which tends to mean that the game is being learned in an unnecessarily complicated way, hurrying too far too fast. This tendency goes for role play in general, but in D&D specifically, it means a tendency to skip the clean basic game in favor of emulating ideas and practices of extended open world games, faking it when you can't do it for real. Remember the basic D&D I described before. The linear game that begins at the dungeon entrance. The referee prepares a single dungeon with simple atomic interactions. Monsters in this room, a trap in this one, a random encounter table for the occasional corridor encounter. No complex multi-room interactions, those can emerge in play. Simple goals, mostly treasure hunting. That's a great game, though I completely understand if it isn't obvious to somebody who comes into role-playing from a place of fantastic imagination and adventure. The dungeon thing seems so very drab. But here's something you won't see unless you try it. That game is brutal. It is a game of death and despair and of pushing your luck with extreme stakes. I'm not in the grips of nostalgia or irony when I say it's fair fun to set up an adventure party and send them into some hellhole to kick down a dungeon door only to then try to be the first player to declare, scream, my retreat from the ghouls. 
The basic game will swiftly teach absolute fundamentals, the importance of hit points, what experience points mean, and the way the game doesn't care about your feelings, only about your decisions. It would be very useful for success in more advanced D&D to first master the basic dungeon game. You don't need to do much legwork in setting up a basic game. Just get a low-level dungeon, some basic rules set, and start playing. Fix things as you go. There's no reason why the basic campaign cannot grow with time into an extended campaign if that's what you want to do. Just keep saying yes to those opportunities to follow the diegetic logic of the game events into places yet unexplored. Next section is Own Your Campaign Premise. What you really need to start a campaign is an understanding of what kind of things you want the campaign to be about in terms of its wargaming exploration. Do you want to have daring sword fights? Space exploration? Wise wizards risking all to break laws of nature? Get a sense of that and build the campaign, setting, situation, rules, around it. I would advise not trying to be too all-embracing about it. The gaming community has historically encouraged you to think of your campaign in terms of trying to fit everything in the kitchen sink from the official rule books into the campaign. All of these character classes, all of these magic systems, and all of these monsters and magic items need to have a home. Ignoring that and focusing on what it is that you really want to do brings real dividends, though. You can always expand the campaign later. For many, often the substantial theme of the campaign is simple pulp fantasy adventuring. As I like to say, you're a footloose cynical bastard with a sword in a primitive, romantic, and cool world. What do you do? Where do you go? There's adventure around every corner. And that's the campaign that has so bewitched generations of gamers. Your campaign doesn't have to be any more specific or unique if that's what you want to do. I imagine everybody wants to do that a fair bit even before considering new vistas. But own that premise, whatever it is, it is your interest driving the game, not just what you read in some book. The next section is Start Small, Grow As You Go. Some commonly accepted wisdom in old school D&D is that a great campaign is usually not built top down, but rather as the campaign proceeds. While it's possible for a master of the game to start with massive overarching principles and large scale world building that zooms down into the practical affairs of adventurers, that's not something you should try to do. The game industry again misleads the hobbyist here in difficult to justify ways. Commercial setting packages and campaign frameworks generally suggest the idea that great campaigns have massive overhead, literally hundreds of pages of campaign world material organically referenced for play. This may be a role-playing game, but it is not this game. If you're starting with a basic campaign, you only need basic rules and a dungeon to get into action. Everything else can be built as you go, session by session as you go. Add more dungeons. Give the base town some character. In fact, detail some NPCs to interact with. Create an overland map. Set up wilderness adventures and urban adventures. Grow the world. What you would really want to have for this is a few clear arch themes that you hew to as you go. But even that is less important than keeping your prep simple and concrete. And then the next section, probably the last one we'll cover here. The Hexcrawl Campaign Seed. For referees wanting to kickstart an extended overland campaign from Session 1, here's a simple tried-and-true structural recipe favored in old-school gaming. We're assuming a Hexcrawl technical context here, but you can do a similar setup 
with other kinds of overland travel and exploration rules too. All right, moving beyond the text here, I've kind of saved this to the end because I think there's a lot to go through in this section of eight pages that I covered here. And one of those pages I didn't read through, it's kind of a graphic where he, the author, details all kinds of genres coming into D&D, different influences from the gen general like pulp fiction or literary fiction or crime genre or sci-fi supers, that sort of thing, to some more specifics, categories within those, ghost story, gothic horror, penny dreadful, fairy tale, high TSR, Gygaxian, and, and just how they relate to each other and to D&D. It's a good graphic. It's something I can't describe with words. Maybe others could, but I can't. And there's so, also sort of a, well, not sort of, a, there's a timeline on one side kind of trying to put them into where they came into the public realm, where these types of fiction came into the public realm, and how they all filtered into where they connected with D&D in the 1970s. So if you have the book, it's it's on page 127. It's very interesting to, to look at and consider. But talking about the text itself, again, we run across the notion of the campaign being the game. The game is the campaign, and everything else feeds into what you want the campaign to be. And that includes the rule set. And he said several times in here, it should just be a rule set that's D&D-like, including things like hit points and experience points that are, that are similar in that vein, and that would cover pretty much all the types of D&D and some other games as well. And, you know, that is good from one perspective because that really avoids the whole edition wars that have really kind of plagued the D&D band of the hobby for years where editions change and old people, people who are proponents of the old editions and people who enjoy the new editions at some point the, along the edges, not the, not the, not the main parts of the groups because who probably doesn't, don't really care what other people are playing, but the, the people who, who think about where the game is going mechanically or who enjoy one set of mechanics and rules over another, they, get into tension with one another and uh, especially as it's happening as is happening now as of the this particular podcast where tsr where not tsr where hasbro and wizards of the coast have said they're transitioning from what what is currently fifth edition into what they call one D D, and it's supposed to be backwardly compatible and everything but there's going to be new books and stuff and so there's a lot of uh, heartburn about that in in the hobby, in certain certain realms of the hobby, and a lot of uh, accusations and recriminations about how Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast are going about it and everything, and what it means for the future, and what people are expecting them to go towards in the future, and it's a money grab, and it's they're moving people away from play at the table to online play and things like that. So it, it's pretty timely to, to read that section and, and realize that if you treat the campaign as central, then the rule system is just the one that, that is, is comfortable for you, the one that you know. 
And another thing that he's talked about in this book is is knowing the rule set and getting to know the the basics of a D and D style game and how those specific things work. He went through that in sections earlier in the book, what he considers the basic parts of a D and D game and how and what those mean and how those affect how a campaign will progress. And so then just the, the general rule set that where that covers more specifics than just those general categories, what fits into a D and D game is not, is only relevant to what you're trying to accomplish with your campaign. What kind of, what kind of flavor you're trying to have, what kind of adventures you're trying to simulate, what kind of, uh, idea you're trying to immerse yourself in depending on how you're approaching it from a game perspective or a personal perspective or a character perspective. And then the rest of this section ad is advocating start simple, which is true of really any type of gaming that you're doing where you want to start with the basics. In some cases, that's the whole game. And in some cases, there's more advanced scenarios in a game that you can build up to. In this case, he's talking about the dungeon game. The dungeon game is sort of the beginning set. You started the dungeon. You don't worry about quite as much about the the overworld, about how you got there and how you get back. But you have a dungeon that's either the dungeon is close enough or you just start at the dungeon and you kind of hand wave parts that later on you'll fill in and deal with as to how what goes on be after you go in, before you go into the dungeon, or after you come out of the dungeon, how that affects the characters in the rest of the world. You build on from there, but the dungeon is the foundation. And just having a basic town and a basic dungeon, and going from there to give, particularly newer players, or even maybe experienced players that are coming into your campaign for the first time. It's the first time you played together, so you're having to learn, if not the game itself learn the people and the characters that you're playing with and how those are going to relate to each other and how you're going to work together. And just that getting that, getting that chemistry that helps make a campaign flow from the start. And then beyond just talking about the dungeon being the basic, giving it a general idea of how to set up a very basic hex crawl sandboxy where if you're not starting at a dungeon this is how you construct just for a small area of the world for the characters to explore that give them meaningful choices and give them an opportunity to to get some information to act upon so they're not acting blindly and give them choices of where to go and then you can go from there reacting to their choices what will be what will add on to that what will those choices generate in turn after they've executed on what they want to do at first? And just a few very general ideas of how to start off a campaign. So I thought it was a very good portion of the book, a very sort of workable oriented portion of the book, not as much, you know, intellectual trying to understand, but simply here are some steps to how you can start a campaign. And so I, you know, I think this is one, maybe one of the more useful parts of the book for somebody to pick up that picks up and reads to start off with, because it's something you can, you know, the book encourages you from the beginning to read this along with your favorite set of D and D rules so that you can relate to that. And this is some, 
some more practical advice than just general ideas about how the game is played in the wargaming way. So that's my take on that. Uh, look forward to hearing any of your thoughts on it. And uh, yeah, I think I'll end this part there. Thank you. And now more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. Holy magic pools, Batman. Right you are, boy wonder. Wow, I wasn't seeing that coming. So that's interesting. I think definitely a role for deity intervention is fair. And I think if maybe they went back and got with their patriarch or the head of their order or something like that, maybe I'd give a bonus for that deity to intervene. The and if the deity intervenes, I would let them stay a paladin with lower intelligence or raise their intelligence back up or something, you know, whatever. That, that'd be fine. Or the wishing pool, I, I would allow it as a DM. If the wish was, could I be a, you know, stay a paladin or, or become a paladin again, I, I think maybe I would allow it. Um, but aside from intervention from the deity or from a wish because I think wish we talked about wishes before I think they get shortchanged a little bit but aside from one of those two things I would make them lose their paladinhood because you are going by the book that shall not be named and that raised the intelligence requirement so I would force them to stay there it does raise the interesting question though you know if we're using the aging mechanics Sometimes the aging mechanics, as characters get older, can make them ineligible for their, you know, their classes. Honestly, I don't think I would let somebody age out of their class. So if they got, so due to the effects of age, somebody's attributes drop to the point they no longer qualified, I would leave them as their class at that point. Now, this is a slightly different case, and here I would have them lose their paladinhood, so maybe I'm, you know, playing two ends of the coin here, but I would not I would not have them lose the class due to aging, but in this case, I would have them lose the class, but I would let a wish or deity intervention have them stay as a paladin, so that's my votes, not that you're asking for votes, and I look forward to seeing what you do. Hey, Pink Phantom, Daniel from Bandits, keep calling in. Interesting uh, situation there with the Paladin. You know, it's funny, I wonder, and I think, and again, this is me not having played AD&D in a long time, and also, like, haven't even looked at Unearthed Arcana, I don't know. I bought it again, but I kind of flipped through it, so I haven't looked at it really since I was a kid, but I always think of the prerequisites, as it would be, to be a class or a race, as something that you need when you at character creation, and then they kind of go away, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is, I believe in AD&D, for instance, in order to qualify as, well, I know you can't be a different race as a paladin, but let's say a ranger, I think a ranger can be a half-elf, I'm pretty sure that you must qualify as a ranger before adding any, or subtracting any racial uh, bonuses or penalties. Which would mean to me, I mean, I would then use that idea that that's just something that you need to become the class. Because I'm pretty sure that 
and again, I, I'm going off memory. I'm pretty sure that like a half elf like loses, I don't know, constitution or something. But if you qualify as a ranger, you can be a half elf and then your con will drop below the normal amount. You won't stop being a ranger. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Maybe somebody who plays more AD&D or, you know, or you obviously <laughs> can look deeper into that and see if I'm completely off base there. But I'm pretty sure that's true. And if that's the case, then I wouldn't say losing intelligence would make them lose the class. That being said, I love how it's working narratively. And I think that what I would probably rule in your case is I might make them use the pool, but I think the, you know, talking to their deity, right? Doing some kind of a task would just let them keep it with the nine intelligence, you know, because mechanically, I don't think I'd make them lose it, but it's cool narratively to have them do something to kind of earn. Because I'm pretty sure wish spells in AD&D, unless that changed, can only raise an ability score like one-tenth of a point. So I don't know if the wish would actually do it by the rules, right? But I think that narratively, it's just cooler to let the the person have that if they can do some kind of quest. Anyways, I'm really enjoying the actual play as always. Hope all is well. I'll talk to you soon. I've put these two calls together because they're broaching the same subject. My discussion about in my previous episode tells the dragon slayer where during the adventure prior the paladin went into a magical pool that dropped his intelligence score below the minimum necessary to be a cavalier and using unearthed arcana which i used to generate the original characters uh the paladin is a subclass of the cavalier in the player's handbook version of the paladin where it's a subclass of fighter you only need a nine intelligence for a cavalier, you need to be a cavalier, you need a 10 intelligence. And the magical pool dropped him down to a 9. So there's two parts to each of both Jason and Daniel's comments on that. One of them alludes to what the rules are and how the rules do things. And one of them is about, you know, suggestions about how this could be handled. So I'm going to address the rules questions first real quick because... It was interesting, Jason bringing up aging and how aging works, and Daniel bringing up the question of choosing a race after you choose a class, and so your racial adjustments wouldn't reduce you out of that class. So according to the player's handbook, going to uh, Daniel's first, uh, going to the player's handbook, if you go through, there's a section on character abilities, then it goes to character races. After a player has determined the abilities of his or her character, it is then time to decide what racial stock the character is to be. And then down toward the bottom of that section, where right before the penalties and bonuses, uh, these penalties and bonuses are applied to the initial ability scores generated by the player for his or her character as soon as the racial stock of the character is selected, and the modified ability scores are then considered as if they were the actual ability scores for all game purposes. And then the next section after that is character classes. So you go generate ability scores, choose the race, adjust the ability scores, and then class. Going by the book. The other thing which Jason raised, he didn't ask an actual question, but he said he wouldn't let aging affect your ability to be part of a class if it dropped a score above or below. And according to the Dungeon Master's Guide, toward the end of the aging section, it specifically says below the chart of 
how the different races mature and how they move from one one section of one age to another, from adult to mature to age to old to venerable. It is important to remember that adjustments cannot exceed racial maximums, nor can they be used if they cause abilities to exceed stated maximums. Likewise, any adjustments cannot lower any ability below racial or class minimums. So once you select your class, once you select your once you select your race and your class, you are going to be eligible for that race and class. And if aging would take you below that, if an adjustment down in ability would take you below that, it just doesn't take effect. Is the way I'm reading that. So natural aging won't knock you out of a class. But of course, this was not natural aging. This was a magical effect. And from my perspective, it doesn't. It doesn't. These rules don't apply to it. You can exceed your maximums, whether they're based on race or sex, because there were differences. I believe in the sexes. I'm not looking directly at that, but I think there were on what your ability scores could be based on the sex of the character, and of course on the race of the character. But this magical pool would would allow you to exceed that, or maybe even drop below that, but not drop you out of that classification. That would be interesting. Could you not be an elf if it dropped you below the minimum for an elf? Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> you walk into the pool, you lose your ability score, and suddenly you're human. That would be terrifying. Talk about that might even feel worse than losing your paladinhood. So the second thing is, of course, how are we going to deal with Prayer the Paladin? And looking through. I looked at Deities and Demigods, the Deities and Demigod book, to see if there was a a deity adjudication or deity interference table of some sort in there. In the section on clerics and deities, I came across this. As Dungeon Master, you will have to determine the amount of involvement of deities as you develop your campaign. Spur-of-the-moment intervention can be handled as follows. If the character beseeching help has been exemplary in faithfulness, then allow a straight 10% chance that some creature will be sent to his or her aid if this is the first time the character has asked for, not received help. If double zero is rolled, there is a percentage chance equal to the character's level of experience that the deity itself will come, and this chance is modified as follows. Each previous intervention on behalf of the character, minus 5%. Alignment behavior only average, minus 5%. Alignment behavior borderline, minus 10%. Direct con confrontation with another deity required by the situation, minus 10%. Character opposing forces diametrically opposed alignment, plus 1%. Character serving deity approximately through direct instructions or by some means of some intermediary, plus 25%. Which is an interesting chart because... There's only two places you can get bonuses, and one of them is only plus 1% if you're acting against creatures of a the diametrically opposed alignment. So if you're lawful good and you're confronting chaotic evil, you get a plus 1%. And if you haven't been exemplary, or at least above average, in your alignment behavior, you're going to get a negative of some kind. And if you've had to be... Inter if they've had to intervene on your behalf before, that's going to be a negative. And if they're confronting another deity, that's a negative. So 
very difficult to get a positive. And that got me to thinking, was Prayer and his group with Michael and their men at arms, were they in that dungeon area that the party is turning into their headquarters on some sort of a mission, some sort of a quest, some sort of a you know, service to his deity. Uh, you know, something approximate to when the Arthurian knights were searching for the Holy Grail. Something along that line. Maybe they were searching for, maybe they're looking to clean out, if he served, for example, a lawful good or some other good entity, maybe they were trying to clean out creatures, evil creatures who had taken refuge in there, or rescue good creatures that were in there because we've run across gnomes and dwarves that are kind of scattered throughout the, the dungeon right now. or seeking some kind of item, again, referring back to something like the Holy Grail, or some other mission that requires delving or at least searching the dungeon for something. But in order to know that, I would need to know who his deity was. And so what I do is generate a deity. And I'm going to use the deity in Demigod's book here to do it. What I've done is I've gone through and I've looked at how many gods and demigods there are in here among the varying factions, because there's a lot of factions in here. And this is the book that includes the Melanobonian mythos. I know I said that wrong. The ones from the Elric books and the Cthulhu mythos. So this is like a first printing uh, version. And there's 196 deities in there. So I've got my percentile dies, and I've got my, uh, you know, golf ball looking D100 that, you know, if I actually rolled it on a wooden floor, something would roll essentially until it hit a wall, even if I just rolled it very gently. And I'm going to roll these and generate three numbers and see what those deities are and maybe try to pull them together into a god for prayer and try to determine from what I'm looking, well, it would, ha it would almost pretty much have to be an, a lawful good deity because the paladin. So, so let's see what we come up with here. All right, I got 44 and 8, so that would be 52. That's going to put it, that's going to pull from the Chinese, Chinese mythos. That'll be interesting. And I got a 34 and a 34, so that's a 68. So that's going to pull from Egyptian. We're going with the really ancient mythologies here. And then finally, a 73 and an 83. So that's 156. And that's going to pull us into, oh, the Nehun, Nehun, Nehun. I can't even remember how to write N E H W O N, Nehun. I think that's from Greyhawk. I believe that's, that's the mythos from uh, Greyhawk. All right, so let's see where that brings us to. Dig through the book here. So the Chinese, going to the Chinese mythos, uh, the last Chinese god is number 56 on the overall list. So 52 would be the fifth back. That's going to be No Cha. No Cha. Demigod of Thieves. No Cha is the patron of thieves, and there are many tales of his famous thieving exploits. Now, this is not specifically the deity that 
that he's going to have. I'm just looking for it for inspiration. So the patron of thieves, I don't know if that will <laughs> add anything to it, but I can see where raiding a dungeon, searching a dungeon could be thief-like. So that could be, it could be, a, you know, a god that's over uh, searching or recovering items. So not in a thievery way, but in a way of recovering holy items for, for, you know, noble purposes. All right. The Egyptian mythos, uh, poll number 68, the Egyptian mythos goes through 81. So here, the Cthulhu mythos, which is just above it goes to 64. So it'd be the fourth deity in. So one, two, three, four. Upshy, the god of insects. He can control any type of insect. So the god of insects. We're getting an interesting, interesting combination here. Just rolling on these, these gods. All right, and the last one, pulling from the Nawan, 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 and. Number rolled hundred and six. Is that right? Yep. Nope. That's not right. One hundred and fifty-six. Again, can't read my own handwriting. And one fifty-five is the last one of the one above that. So this would be the first one in. First God. So what's the first God here? Another demigod, Arth, A-A-R-T-H, Arth, or Earth. Arth was a powerful wizard, becoming renowned after death, achieved demigodhood because of his worshippers. Let's see. His temples are among the Mayas and all Lankmar. Seems that more powerful patrons are devoted to the cult more out of fear of re the revealing of information than faith. In the mitre of the religion. The clerics make it their personal duty to sneak about the town, learning all they can about the populace. So a god essentially of of learning secrets. Learning secrets and people's secrets and knowledge. So we have a patron of thieves, a demigod of insects, and a demigod of learning secrets. These are all very suspect gods in terms of a, a lawful good alignment. But I think I can see how this can work with a lawful good god. This is a god that seeks to uh, either hide or recover or destroy recover and destroy hidden secrets that would work against you know a, a an orderly in good uh, world, an orderly and good plane of existence. Uh, and as far as how insects fall in there, you know, insects have a they're they're a social they're a social creature with a hierarchy, and the the this god is at the top of that hierarchy and sends what are essentially its drones in to to 
go to hidden places, secret places, and to find these secrets and reveal them and either take them to a place of safety where they can't be used by the forces of evil or where they can be uh, destroyed. And this actually fits well into what's kind of going on in the world here because I had this concept when I was trying to create a world that this dragon exists in and why it is the way it is that there is hidden in this kind of area a an artifact, a very grand artifact that allows chaotic evil creatures like goblins and orcs that, that operate in sizable but not huge bands to bring forth and influence and organize enough that they can amass vast armies. And the reason why the human kingdom is in this area is because that artifact was used twice in rather rapid succession and they in their attempts in the, the attempts of these goblins and orcs to push south into the more civilized and organized lands Normally, they would run up against the dwarves in this vast range of mountains, but they simply, by having it happen, having two large hordes happen in succession, the dwarves were not enough to hold it back, and it spilled down into the human kingdom and wreaked havoc. The second, the second army did, until they were finally defeated and sent back north through the the one really large pass that they could get through. So I established that this artifact was there a long time ago, and there is actually a map that the that the party has recovered that shows this. And I'm not sure if Prier is actually aware of that yet because the party hasn't done much with. They've got several maps, and they ha, they've kind of just been collecting them because they've been focused on establishing their stronghold and bringing in their army and kind of getting control of this area and helping the kingdom gain control and organization of the overall area, especially with all the different creatures that are moving in now that the dragon is gone. So they've been very distracted. So it's possible that they haven't even mentioned it to him because they don't know that's why he's here, if that's why he's here. So now we have to establish that. So some time ago, I was playing around just with mechanics and the idea of oracles. And listening to podcasts about or people using oracles about oracles. And I, I came up with an idea of just creating a simple oracle using uh, fudge dice or fate dice is probably what more people know them as now, where you have two pluses, six side dice with two pluses, two minuses and two blank sides. And you roll them to generate in the, in the games fudge and fate based games. You, you'll get a handful of dice based on skills and attributes that you have and use them to roll to overcome things, and you'll need so many pluses to, to overcome an obstacle or, or to overcome a challenge. And depending on how pluses and minus roll out, they'll cancel each other out, and you see how that adjudicates in the number of pluses you have, whether you succeed or not. But I wanted, I had an idea to turn this to an oracle, oracle you, Using, you know, more than just yes, no, the, the familiar yes, and no, and yes, but no, no, but in this case, yes, and something positive, no, and something negative. Yes, but there's a setback. No, but there's something that 
will aid the party, aid the person rolling or the character rolling or the party rolling later. And then just simple yeses and nos. And the way it works is the double plus is yes and. So that's your best result. But very but on 2d6, that even with two pluses on each die, that's gonna be hard to get to obtain. And ditto with two minuses. It's no and, it's the worst result. And if it's just a plus and a blank, it's just a plain yes. If it's a minus and a blank, it's just a plain no. And then I'm kind of squirreling around with two options for plus minus or two blanks. Because the the plus minus is going to be a little more, I think, potentially looking at, I believe the, the odds are a little better to get a plus minus than a double, than the double blank. Because the double blank is the same as the double plus and the double minus, but the plus minus, there's, there's a little more variation there. So initially I said uh, the plus minus would be yes, but a setback. And the double, double blanks would be the no, but there's, there's something positive in it. And then I got to thinking maybe to, to keep those two possibilities equal in the odds, it would be a matter of how you read them. So if you roll a plus and a minus, you read it from right to left and top to bottom. So if the plus is above or to the left of the minus, then it's the yes but. But if the minus is above or to the left, it's the no but. And then just have the double blank either be a re-roll or it pushes, pushes the decision if there's some kind of decision to a later time. Or maybe there's some sort of special result that the situation has that resolves. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll my little oracle here to see if indeed prayer is on a mission to seek out or seek out information of this artifact for this deity. So they're on, well, first, are they on a mission for the deity? And then are they on the, is he on the mission to search out this particular artifact? So is prayer acting on direction for their deity, either directly or indirectly? And we got a double blank. So let's uh, give that another roll. Oop, and that one came right out of the tray. And we got a plus blank. So a simple yes. Prayer is on a mission for that. Is it about this particular artifact? And this is a minus blank. So no. Prior is on a different mission, but he was in the, he and his party were in that dungeon for there's deity. Uh, could finding the magic pool be related to the mission? Is this, is finding magic pools some of the, maybe some of the secret knowledge that he's looking for? Plus blank. So yes. So finding a magic pool is part of why he's delving this dungeon. So he does have at least a base 25% chance of his deity uh, intervening. Uh, are there any other possibilities to aid that? Because potentially you have Sir Gus there and Katya has just arrived. And what I didn't mention in the previous podcast is that when Katja came, in addition to bringing the rest of 
the soldiers with her that were coming to Sir Gus's aid. She also, out of concern for this ring of delusion that is that Cudgel is a little obsessed with and that kind of has hold of him, she has brought help. And she's brought help in the case of two high-level clerics to help try to find a way to maybe cast a remove curse if they can convince Cudgel to go along with it. And also her mentor has come along with her because he's interested in the ring. He's interested in uh, kind of what the situation is with the wishes that she's told him that she's made and just in general and what's going on in this, you know, what was once upon a time a guard post that obviously had not been explored very much because there's a lot more to it, obviously. We know now. And she's been getting messages. They've been getting messages back and forth because in, in my mind, the, the soldiers that were already there had been, you know, moving back and forth between town, some of them between town and here, on R&R to get supplies. And there has been communication between the party and Katya, even as she has been training, though she's been concentrating on her training. So there is potential help for prayer, even though these are probably not of his God. So I need to come up with the name of the God and kind of what, what his deal is overall or her deal, or its deal, depending on how that goes, because I've got one God that I established that was kind of the God of the afterlife or adjudicating the initial part of the afterlife that is more or less fits in with a, a new, neutral sex deity. So I need to figure those things out. Uh, I'm going to ponder on that some more, because there is one other thing that may... It may cast an effect on this also because among the other roles I've had, in addition to having roles for the pool and roles for the party and they've explored the dungeon, I've continued to do random encounters for the location to see what's going on in the grander world in terms of around the keep. And I've rolled up some more orcs. <laughs> so just as the party's and the orcs rolled up on the day after Katya arrives. So just as the party has had a little bit of time in the morning, because I rolled it up for the noon check, so the party will have time in the morning to kind of have established what they're going to to do overall with the army, with their little miniature army, to to help secure the keep and to help patrol the road. Uh, some orcs are going to show up. so, And that may have a disposition on, a an effect on the disposition of prayer's God, depending on what actions he takes in regards to when the orcs show up. So that's going to be the next thing. What happens with the orcs? And we'll learn a little more about prayer, either maybe right before or right after that. So I hope you enjoyed this little ramble about gods and how to deal with Prier's problem and will he be able to remain a paladin and uh yeah if you have any input into what i've done here or any questions or any ideas just please let me know all the contact information will be coming immediately after this thank you the opening music of this podcast is strength of the titans and the closing music is late night radio both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. 
licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response. And it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email, or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantomthoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864 864- 209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.